Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and today I'm flying solo while my co-host David is up enjoying the mountains of North Carolina. Today we have joining with us Cindy Wong Branch. She is an author, speaker, and podcaster. She has recently released a book called Parenting Forward, How to Raise Children with Justice, Mercy, and Kindness. In addition to that, um, a lot of you may know her also as the um, founder of the Raising Children Unfundamentalist Facebook group, which has almost 15,000 members now. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So Cindy, we always um, start our podcast um, by asking our guests if or when, let me say when you become famous and someone is making a biopic of your life, and you have the choice to have whoever you want to play you. It could be multiple actors or actresses. (laughs) Um, Who or whom might that be? Well, as an Asian woman, this brings up the issue of representation in Hollywood. Mm. There aren't that many Asian women actresses um, who readily comes to mind, but... uh, That's changing and it needs to change a lot more. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's equal representation. But there is um, a hit film recently that was an all Asian cast, Crazy Rich Asians. I don't know if you Uh saw it. I did. I loved it. I know. It's so good. I loved it too. Oh, it's so good. It's, uh, yeah, it's excellent. I actually just watched it a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And there's several amazing, strong, smart um, women who played in the movie, including Michelle Yeoh and um, Constance Wu, of course, is the lead. And mm-hmm. then I don't remember her name. She's British, but she's the one that plays the sister-in-law. Yes. Yeah. She's so beautiful. Um, <laughs> so I think she's far too elegant for me. Michelle Yeoh, I also feel like I, I, she's, yeah, I'm unworthy. But Constance Wu, I think she's okay because she also <laughs> plays in Fresh Off the Boat. I don't know yep. if you watched that show and she's like kind of goofy and silly mm-hmm. enough that I feel like she could play me. And of course she's, yeah, she's also a strong woman. And so I would love if she played me. Awesome. That would be <laughs> really cool. Yeah. Well, you know, you're, you're, you're close, you know, just a couple years away and you can have your pick. <laughs> <laughs> so our podcast and um, we talk about authenticity and our journeys of finding um, who we are. And I'm wondering, where would you say, or when would you say, um, you found um, permission to be who you are? um, Or was there multiple times? Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Sure. Um, Before we start answering, before I answer your question, I I do wrestle with this question a lot because as you know, I've written a parenting book and Mm. I run my group about parenting. So I often think about this idea of 
um, allowing our children to be themselves, but see this at the same time, they're being formed still, right? And, mm-hmm. yeah. and so I often wonder, are, is there really like that authentic self that we need to just let out that's just in there in us? Or um, are we forming that authenticity? Yeah. And I think my conclusion is that it's both. Um, yeah. And I think that's true of, of me when I try to think about my um, life journey so far. A lot of it has been this uncovering of my true self. But I also, at the same time, recognize that my selfhood and my personhood was being shaped by the influences that were in my life. Mm. Um, so it's a complicated question. I just made your yeah. question complicated. No, but... but um, but that's a good that's a good breakdown um, of how we look at that. Um, yeah. That you know the nature versus nurture. Um, it's right. Yeah, it's, it's a hu- it is a huge part, um, and we have to acknowledge both sides. Right. But I think of it from like a parent's perspective, and I think I think that as as true as it is that we have an influence on our children's lives, I also think we have a responsibility to um, combat and advocate for them, the influences mm. that uh, keep them from expressing whatever individuality is in them. Um, mm. And so I think that we're, we play both roles as parents in our children's lives, that we're both mm. influencing and kind of protecting like our biggest influence is to create this field like I picture this shield around our children's lives yeah Uh, you know our mama bear energy that Mm -hmm. allows them to play to be free inside of that field you know Mm -hmm. so anyway I'm trying to get back to your question you're asking me when I felt like (laughs) I (laughs) no but I love that image I love that visual of that creating that field that mama bear like it's just because there's so much that our children go through mm-hmm. and yeah anyways let's go yes let's go back to the question as far as did you have that in your life and were you able to find your authenticity at a young age or and was it maybe something you discovered as you got older no I don't think I had that um and I I don't you know, I feel like my parents and the authority figures in my life were doing their best, but mm-hmm. I I felt like there were many ways that I was not able to be myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's part of it is my social location. Again, I've mentioned I'm an Asian woman, so mm-hmm. I am a woman. Um, so I've had the patriarchy suppressing my mm-hmm. power um, and my humanity from day one. Uh, I'm a woman of color which means Mm -hmm. white supremacy has also been an influence in my life, not allowing me to embrace my culture and telling me that parts of my culture and my color and, and, um, and who I am in this world, this is not, it's not worthy um, of of white people. (laughs) Um, And so there are lots of ways that I could not access my authentic self and yeah, I'm, I, I hesitate to pinpoint that on anything except for the, the larger systems and forces that are at work. Um, mm. And that's just the way it is. So I've had to fight my way and I'm still fighting every day uh, mm. for, to take up space. And that's just my reality. And yeah. I don't say that in a way like, oh, I'm complaining or throwing a pity party. Oh. 
but just an awareness and consciousness of my social location. Oh, yeah. I mean, just as those of us who are Caucasian need to realize the reality that we, at least for myself growing up, um, lived in this such a false perception of what our history was, um, of how our country was set up, um, (laughs) what I was taught as a child. And so we, as Caucasian people, need to start relearning what I would say the truth. And now granted, that's a very broad term to say the truth. I believe that our perspective is so skewed because Mm -hmm. of the culture, quote, norms um, that we live in. And it's our responsibility to step out of that and to acknowledge that there is definitely a huge skewed lens with which we were raised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is unhealthy for all people, including white people. Yes. Um, But at the same time, we uh, don't need to be coddled because it's our job to learn. (laughs) White people, I'm talking to you. Um, (laughs) I love you all. I have lots of, most of my friends are white, but it is our job. We need to step out of that and it's nobody else's job to teach us. Hmm. So going um, from there, well, let me say, I read a little bit um, on your blog and a little bit, and you grew up in a more fundamentalist religious background. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up conservative evangelical. um, So there may be some contention as to whether or not you consider that fundamentalist. I absolutely do. (laughs) I I think evangelical is is equated with fundamentalism today in today's context. Mm-hmm. Me too. So, yeah. So I grew up in a conservative evangelical school in Taiwan. Um, I call myself a missionary convert because I mm-hmm. was converted by missionaries. Um, mm. So that's that was my background. So in addition to the patriarchy and white supremacy, I also had religious fundamentalism, which mm-hmm. really tries as darn best to diminish personal autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that's, and I think that my process of breaking free of a lot of the systems of oppression began when I realized that that was what my faith, which is so sad because our faith yeah. is this beautiful, pure thing that access gives us access to spirituality. Mm-hmm. But the faith that I was given was delivered through this toxic system. And mm-hmm. I think trying to break free from that was my first step in beginning to learn about all these layers of expectations that had kind of trapped me um, and, and was oppressive. How young were you when that was your experience with um, the religious or the evangelical missionaries? Uh, I started going to that school when I was in sixth grade, so I was 12. But even before that, I had some exposure to religion, although I would say, because I went to an Anglican school when I was in fourth grade, and that was, it was very religious in terms of, it's like, you know, liturgical, lots of images Mm -hmm. that kind of scared me as a kid. Like I remember a picture of Jesus on the cross and that scared me. Um, Traumatizing. Yeah. But it wasn't until the the evangelical school where they actively tried to convert me as a child, Mm -hmm. which I think is very harmful. Oh, I do too. Yeah. So that's, that was my first exposure. So what started to bring you out of that, that evangelical environment? What, what was that turning point? Or maybe it was a, a, a slow pivot 
out of it. It was very slow. And that's, it wasn't by accident that it's slow because the ethos of that culture is to make you afraid to veer (laughs) out of it. So for me, I stayed in it for a very long time. And I, I, it's not, I know it's not by accident. I knew that I was basically groomed to remain in the system. Um, But I was thinking about when, when was it that I began to kind of embrace, you know, have my eyes open to some of these, these things that are happening to me and how I can empower Mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, and even though it's slow, I think it's almost every time that you I venture out of the bubble. So I yeah. grew up in this very small school. Um, okay. And then I went to Wheaton College, which is still very evangelical, but it yes. was at least a larger school. And then I went to seminary out in LA, which, as you know, is much more... It's a different atmosphere, yeah, I'll say that. Yeah. So even though Fuller is still evangelical, mm-hmm. um, it's at least exposed to a lot more ideas and mm-hmm. people, yeah. and it was um, more expansive theologically as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went overseas to be a missionary. So that was my trajectory for my young adult life. And I, th- I think that looking back, I can see how every time I stepped out of my bubble, I... I grew a little bit more. And I think that what happens is that I didn't see a mirror for myself. I was in this place where I really didn't belong. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't see mirrors. And, and every time you step out, you meet more people who kind of reflect back a little bit more of who you are. And, yeah. um, and every time I stepped out, I, I saw more mirrors. I saw more representation. Mm-hmm. And it was like bit by bit, I was reclaiming um, parts of myself. And then, and then eventually I was like, I don't need a mirror. I am the mirror. (laughs) I can reflect off to people who may resonate with me, who may see themselves in me and be empowered because of my life. And, and so I think that those are the moments, but, but I can tell you, um, a turning point, probably the most drastic turning point was when I finally left the mission field. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, f- that was the point where I finally cut ties with yeah. that system. I-, I cut ties vocationally to that system. Mm-hmm. You know, when we left the mission field, I was finally free from any obligation, at least professionally. And then it was like, I was able to explore. I was able to ask my questions and know that there weren't consequences. Although... <laughs> It's still, you know, where your brain is wired to, to fear consequences. Uh-huh, you it definitely. still takes time. So even though like on paper, there weren't going to be any consequences, I still felt it in my brain. So yeah, it continues to be a struggle. Yeah, it's, I was going to say, it's the, it's the muscle memory of just over and over again, the things that we were told. And I mean, when you have years, if not decades, of mm-hmm. things that have been pounded into your brain verbally, even I don't know about for you, but I know for me, um, it was not only externally things pounded in, but it was my self talk trying mm-hmm. to convince myself mm-hmm. that this was the right way, that this is what I should be doing. And so it takes time. I have only been on the <laughs> self-growth, self-journey, deconstructing, reconstruction, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. for 10 years. And I'm 42. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's 32 years. That's the big chunk of time to it just doesn't automatically shut off. 
Right, right. Yeah, I was in. Yeah, I would say that for me too. I would say my the, my 30s, that decade, was mm-hmm. when the serious deconstruction happened. And yeah, it took all 10 of those years. And, yeah. you know, it's still, it's looking differently now, um, I think. But, but yeah, it is a long, do you know Linda K. Klein? She's the author of the book Pure. Uh, she talks about purity culture. Oh, that's why you know her name. I was like, yes, I, I know. I haven't read yeah. that book. It's on my list. So she talks about purity culture. That's where her book is about. And mm-hmm. and that how that sense of shame, even after you've dropped maybe that sexual ethic of purity culture, mm-hmm. you still experience that shame. And she says it's because the way that our brain synapses have formed it doesn't, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can't untangle the way your synapses have formed in your brain very mm-hmm. easily. Um, and so that's why so many people still struggle with shame, despite, you know, disavowing purity culture. It's such, it's just so yeah. damaging. Oh, goodness, it is very damaging. And I was brought up in purity mm-hmm. culture. And uh, it, <laughs> it makes it makes me cringe. And it makes me sad all at the mm-hmm. same time. Because I feel like I didn't get to know that part mm-hmm. of myself until later 30s. I know. Um, so many of us have that story. Yeah. It just makes me almost weep for my inner child yeah. um, and working through that. So yeah, no, I totally understand that. Mm-hmm. Now, your book that has come out in the last little while, um, Parenting Forward. So for those of you who don't know or may not be a part of, I think a large part of my audience, um, <laughs> there may be a hundred of your followers <laughs> um, from the community that I'm a part of here because um, Raising Children on Fundamentalists was one of our very first resources because when you're in a progressive community and nothing is nothing's out there for children's ministry mm. or if you want to call it children's ministry there's nothing out there for um, families who are um, parents have deconstructed their fundamental or evangelical beliefs mm-hmm. and now we're reconstructing and we're all kind of feeling like we're floundering because yeah. um, now we have these little humans that we're responsible for mm-hmm. um, and you we don't want to pass along the patterns you know yeah. so all that to say is a long-winded way of saying thank you for creating that community. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to hear um, you talk more about what, in addition to that community, what prompted you to write your book? Why did you feel that need? I mean, I obviously know it, but I'd love to hear it in your words. Right. Uh, yeah, it is exactly like you said. I was going through those same feelings. Like I've deconstructed my faith. I'm responsible for my children and I care a great deal about their spirituality um, but mm-hmm. I, I know that I'm basically broken in a way. Uh, I can't um, be a healthy conduit for them um, to access right. their spirituality. And that's why I started writing about this topic and it turned into a book idea. And actually the group came after I started writing the book. Oh, really? Yeah. Most people oh. don't know that because the publishing journey is so long. Is, yeah, that makes sense. That makes right. sense. Yeah. But yes, the idea came before the group. But um, I've learned so much through running the group um, and writing the book. Of course, I feel like I'm and I'm still learning. Um, just wondering if it's possible to raise our children with healthy spirituality um, and away from those influences, whether it's possible for us to set aside our spiritual triggers and not pass on our spiritual baggage. 
I feel mm. like the answer to that question is still unknown to me. Um, <laughs> I think that's the thing with parenting. It takes a long time before you know whether something works because our children yeah. have to grow into adulthood and have all these experiences. But I feel like it's a risk I'm willing to take. Like I'm, mm. I want to risk being wrong to raise my children unfundamentalist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I, I just know that there's got to be a better way and we might not do it perfectly, but we're going to try our best to do it better, um, to give them, mm-hmm. to build that field of love, right? To build that mm-hmm. shield around them so that they can play, have the freedom mm-hmm. to play with their individuality, with their spirituality, with their mm-hmm. sexuality, you know, mm-hmm. like they get to decide for themselves and we're there to hold up the sky so that they Mm. have that space Mm. to work with. Um, That's, yeah, that's the vision um, that I put in my book. I talk about offering our children that kind of radical autonomy that is really not seen anywhere. We're not talking about just inside of fundamentalism, Mm -mm. like the world, the world at large is very anti-child. I recently tweeted about Trevor Noah. I don't know if you watch The Daily Show. I do. Yeah. He often says really anti-child stuff, you know, and that's mainstream television, liberal television. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of everywhere. Um, but but I also just feel so strongly that we could tackle so many of our justice issues if we first afforded our children justice. Uh, yes. So like that's I feel like it's a big Thing that people are missing. I don't often see people who are involved in justice conversations talk about justice to children. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, recently there's been like with the family separation, like that's a child issue. That's a child protection issue. Yes. And I think that's, that's been great that that's been in the limelight. But even in that conversation, when you have an, um, a child advocacy lens on, you can see how, you know, it's so easy to turn children into political pawns. And I saw Definitely. in some ways people did that even with that conversation. So I think it's just such a worthwhile thing to do for us to figure out how we can best give our children the full dignity and humanity mm-hmm. and equality that they deserve. Um, when we actually don't see it yet, like this is something that we're still striving for. Mm-hmm. I know a good friend of mine is one of the co-founders of an organization called Foster Village Charlotte. And mm. what the organization does is it's a nonprofit that works to support um, social workers and to to promote and bring dignity, um, things like clothing items when a child is immediately placed into a foster care situation. Um, because our city, um, and Charlotte's not the only city by far, doesn't have the resources that when a child is pulled out, you know, if, if they're not wearing anything but maybe a blanket, then wherever they're going, mm-hmm. Um, you know, they may not have any clothes with them or, and it could be a new foster family who doesn't have resources and our city doesn't have the resources to give foster parents support and classes. And so we now have organizations like Foster Village Charlotte coming along saying, Hey, these kids are important. And part of these kids being important is providing support groups to foster families as well. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, And I think that not just to promote Foster Village Charlotte, but just to say that's the state that our country's in right now, that our social mm-hmm. care system, let me rephrase that, 
um, the United States is in right now. Um, the Child mm-hmm. Protective Services does not have the resources to adequately take care of the children that are being put in to their charge mm-hmm. that are supposed to be keeping them safe. They're just barely hanging by a string. Yeah. I think that's a great example because I think a lot of times we talk about caring for children, loving children, protecting children, and especially like in religious fundamentalists, they'll readily admit, yeah, of course, we should love our children. But it's this like sentimental view of caring for them that really kind of dehumanizes Mm -hmm. them into objects. Like they're just, oh, innocent beings that we're supposed to cherish and and be blessed by. You know, what equality always means is this systemic support, right? Um, And that's why I always say parenting is very political because the policies that are instituted by the government and by local governance, those are the things that impact families, that impact the women that's Mm -hmm. largely caring for the children. And so we have to have these comprehensive changes if we truly want equality for children. So I'm glad you brought up like a community project. Yeah. I don't want to rant about this, but I also, it comes back, especially for some of us who grown up and some who are still there, um, we have to step out of the white savior complex. Yeah. We're not, it is not look here that the middle upper class white people, straight white people are coming to save yeah. everybody and that everybody needs our money. Mm-hmm. Or let me rephrase that needs us to be there. You know, we yeah. need to lift up the workers who are already there. And more than yes. likely, the people who are in the trenches don't look like us and right. doesn't need to have our face on it. Right. And I think, again, systemic problem. It is systemic. Yeah. That we created going all the way back to colonization. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good reminder, though. And I think that we might not be able to see drastic change very quickly because change never comes quickly. But I think what's happening is that we're opening our eyes to seeing the problem. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people are frustrated by that. They don't want to just hear about the problems. They want to do something about it, which is also very much a white savior compulsion. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, it's okay if we only see the problem right now and that we're taking steps to address it. It's it's that's kind of a messy middle because mm-hmm. we can see that something is wrong and we can't yet fix it. But yeah. w- I think that we have to learn to to be in that uncomfortable tension because we yeah. have to keep becoming conscious of these problems. And and I also talk about this in my book. Like the second half of my book is saying, how can we walk alongside our children in helping? us all address these justice issues like racism, sexism, homophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we do this with our children? How do we give ourselves the vocabulary and the tools to help our children have their eyes opened as soon as possible um, so mm-hmm. that they can be empowered? Not not to like discourage our children and just scare them into thinking they're living in an unsafe world, but to give them the reality and, you know, truth is empowering and, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and they, they deserve it. I will never forget, um, being a freshman in high school in, um, Pueblo, Colorado and my civics teacher, Mr. Martinez, he, the history he taught us that I've never heard anywhere else, um, was that our city, um, 
there's actually a bridge and that bridge um, used to be the border between the U.S. and Mexico and that it was the, the U.S. took it, but the U.S. tricked the general and stole it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that would be taught many other places. Yeah. Um, just that, his, that bit of history be taught just like that. And that was kind of one of the first things um, that it didn't, it didn't all come together in my mind right then, but I always hung on to that bit of knowledge of we stole it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we stole it right out from under them. Um, yeah. And so do you know the do you know the book Lies My Teacher Told Me? No, but I'm very curious about it. <laughs> yeah, it's called Lies My Teacher Told Me and it basically is exposing some of the skewed history that we were taught mm. uh, in in a system of education that is influenced by white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a really good book. It's not new. But they recently came out with a young readers edition oh, nice. that's not written by the original author, but you know I'm sure in collaboration with the original author. So that was really exciting news because I wanted uh, my kids to read it, but it's it's for adults, so it may be a little dry, and it's about history. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I haven't seen the young readers edition, but I'm hopeful that that's could be a good resource for your listeners. If they're interested, look it up. I can give you the link for it. Yeah. Lies my teacher told me. Awesome. And everybody who is listening, I'll just let you know, any books that um, Cindy or myself mentioned, we will make sure to put those in the show notes at BeccaEppley.com. So you will have access to those as well. So Cindy, I'm curious. I know you mentioned you were in your 30s when you started kind of deconstructing what would i'm just out of curiosity what would you say was the most or was there something that was the most challenging part of that deconstruction was your family very a conservative religious family as far as extended families um i grew up in a non-religious family so uh a lot of people make that mistake thinking that my family is fundamentalist Mm -hmm. because i often say i grew up evangelical Mm -hmm. but yeah they were a religious however they did later on convert Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so now uh you know i try to kind of disrespect their spiritual journey as well but i don't i'm thankful that it's not yeah it's not a huge struggle for me with my own family uh like i've said of my story i grew up since sixth grade yeah. i entered that evangelical yeah. world and once you once you're in it it takes a while to get out yeah. so yeah for the next 20 years i was basically in that world and so i created this network of people in my life both from school and from my missionary vocation. Mm -hmm. And so that was my world. The hardest part about deconstruction is risking all of those relationships. And I did lose a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's the cost I paid, but just, that's just what happened. (laughs) I feel like I know this is a hard thing to say for a lot of people. A lot of people get upset with me when I say this, but I'm convinced that you cannot reform evangelicalism from the inside out. Mm-hmm. I feel like, well, let's just say that maybe I tried to do that. <laughs> and what happened was that I was kicked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like if you are loud enough and if you push the status quo enough, eventually they will push you out. They cannot, the system cannot tolerate this. I'm so afraid. And so 
yeah, I just feel like if you want to stay in the system, you have to stay within the status quo, then you're not really dissenting, are you? <laughs> but I know that there are people who do. And so I don't, you know, I want to respect everyone's journey and choices. So but it's my personal experience and opinion that it just doesn't work. And um, yeah, so for me, that's, that's what it costs. I had, I, I was kicked mm-hmm. out. So I know for myself, um, one of the major differences that I've had in the last five to 10 years is that I have more peace right now than I've ever had in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I would be curious about for you, what's, what do you, mm-hmm. what do you, what have you experienced emotionally? Like what, or, you know, mentally, what's, what's the difference just feeling in your body, you know, from all those years to now? Yeah. Well, you know, Jean Vanier, who recently passed mm-hmm. away at 90 years old, he, I saw this video of him and he wasn't even, I don't even know what he was talking about, but he said this one phrase that I just, just caught in my mind. And he said that I want to be anchored in truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that I also experience peace. I think that that peace comes from feeling integrated that for the first time in my life growing up evangelical, I'm able to be anchored in truth. I'm able to mm-hmm. be honest about what I believe, who I am, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and see the world for the way that it actually works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's the piece that I, I find. I find that, of course, I want to stay humble. I'm not saying that I found the whole truth. Oh, and. Yeah. And nothing but the truth. And that, in fact, is the opposite. I feel like being anchored in the truth of all of this has allowed me to be much more curious. I'm able to Mm -hmm. ask questions constantly without fear of backlash. Um, I'm ready. I feel like I constantly feel like I'm at the brink of an adventure. Mm. um, Because that's, that's the kind of freedom and joy, I think, um, that, that I've gained coming out of the system. Um, So it's wonderful. I just recently wrote a piece saying I'm addicted to my freedom. Like I am never letting this go. (laughs) You know, I am not going back. It's phenomenal. And I do still have some evangelical friends. And, you know, I'm happy to have evangelical friends as long as they're willing to let me be who I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, and that's a big that's a big ask for evangelicals. <laughs> so those of you who are willing to just let me be who I am, I'm happy to maintain that friendship. But to be honest, it's hard for me. Like I went out with some evangelical friends yesterday and I was like, I don't really want to waste my time anymore mm-hmm. in this system. It just feels like a waste of time to me. I only have half of my life is over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm ready to like really, you know, seize the day and spend every moment doing good and, you know, curious and, and joy giving and loving and inclusive things instead of getting stuck with all the issues that seem to plague evangelicals minds that problems that I don't are not problems for Mm -hmm. me anymore, you know? So I don't know. I I was just thinking about the way I'm feeling from my time yesterday. I I just, I'm like, did I get triggered? It wasn't because I've been triggered before. I know what it feels like. I think being triggered went back when I would get triggered by 
you know, spiritual triggers, it was a lot of panic and, and, um, and anger (laughs) and bitterness, Mm -hmm. like that was spiritual triggers. And that's very real. I really want to validate people who experience those things. But yesterday, it wasn't so much triggers. It was like, I just wasted my time, you know? It was like a feeling of, okay, don't do this again. Like you don't have to, you don't have to spend time with these people. And, you know, this is something I've only learned post-deconstruction because in evangelicalism, you're told that you're supposed to spend time with the unlovable people, right? And I'm like, you know what? (laughs) I'm going to spend time with people that I enjoy being with and that's okay. That is my prerogative. Um, and it turns out all the people that I enjoy being with are the people who are also pushed out of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's just a different world and it's really, it's really hard to have a deeper relationship with somebody who is not there yet. Um, and I'm going to mm-hmm. say yet because I want to believe that there's hope for everybody finding peace. Um, yeah. But that doesn't, just unlike evangelicalism, it's not our job to save them or bring them out. Uh, exactly. Yes, I agree with that. Um, it's everybody has a journey and you can't force anybody's journey. Everybody evolves at their own pace right. uh, or chooses not to evolve, you know, what, whichever it is. Right. Um, yeah, agreed. I and I, I often think, and I, I guess this may be a little dehumanizing, but I often think of them as victims, you know, fellow victims, because the system really is the evil, mm-hmm. evil one. <laughs> the system is evil, and there are so many victims who are trapped in it still. And, and I agree, you can't, yeah, I don't see it as my job to save them, but I do, I tell my story like I'm doing right now on this podcast and people can choose to listen to this podcast and choose mm-hmm. to believe the trajectory that I've been on and, uh, you know, be inspired to go on it yourself if, if you'd like, but I'm not going to be evangelizing that to any individual. Yeah. yeah. So on that note, which is perfect tie in. So, so a question that we have been asking in our podcast as uh, we kind of wrap up our conversation here is what does the word salvation mean to you now? Hmm. Or does it mean anything? Or how would you define it now? I think for so long, I did not have my personal autonomy because of growing up evangelical. So I think for me, salvation is regaining and reclaiming my personal autonomy and power. Mm. Um, And that's what I want to extend to my children as well. As I talk about in my book, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's, that's the saving grace. Yeah. So personal power, um, I think is, that's what I want for everyone. Like, I feel like if there's anything I want to evangelize, that's what Mm. I want to evangelize. You know, I see people and I'm just like, Listen, girl, <laughs> claim your power, find your liberation. You know, like that's kind of my MO now. Um, I just want people to, to be free because I know that it's worth it. And, and I, I want them to be free, not just for their sake, but because I know our world needs that. Our world needs Desperately. people to be whole, to be themselves, to give us the gifts that are unique to who they are. Um, and, and their joy 
uh, infects me, their joy will give me joy. Mm -hmm. So I feel like anytime somebody wants to control you, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not free themselves. If they're preaching some salvation that is controlling of you, it's not true salvation. But if they are in front of you wanting you to be free, Mm -hmm. that's that's the truth. And that's the gospel. Just uh, if we could just learn that we are worthy and that it's not external, um, Mm. that we have worthiness, like especially as women, um, especially marginalized communities, because I feel like the sense of worth has been stripped a lot away Mm -hmm. from people. It's Mm -hmm. not that it doesn't exist, but... When again, going back to the whole cognitive pathway and thoughts and how our brains react to things that we've been told over and over again, I think mm-hmm. we have to really retrain our brains that we're worthy. And it's not because we're some awful, sinful people and that we were saved, it's because that's the way we were created to begin with. Yeah. Um, that's what I believe. But think about the power there is then if we train our children's synapses to believe that from the get-go you know if we can wire their brains to embrace that then think about how much it would take how many negative messages it would take to have to untangle that Mm. you know and that's i think that's the hope um that we have as people who work with children who have children we you know, and not even not just parents, anybody, if you are working with kids, you have this awesome opportunity to wire their brain to believe that they're worth, you know, that they're, they are worthy of love and belonging. Um, that's a beautiful thing to offer in whatever ways that you can. Mm-hmm. Well, Cindy, thank you so much um, for sharing your story and spending time um, with us tonight. Um, Can you let everybody know real quick where they can contact you, read your blog, and all of that good stuff? My book, uh, as you've said, is Parenting Forward. It's available on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. Um, You can find my group on Facebook called Raising Children on Fundamentalists, and it's on the same topic. And it's It's a very engaged group. Lots of people are extremely smart (laughs) and insightful and and offer kind advice often. You can find my podcast. I also have a podcast Mm -hmm. called Parenting Forward. And my blog is at cindywongbrant.com. And I'm active on all the socials. (laughs) (laughs) All those things too as well. And we will have all of your information also listed in the show notes. Um, So people can just click there as well, which again will be at BeccaEppley.com. Cindy, thank you again. We need voices like yours, especially voices who can speak into the parenting side because I know there's so many of us like myself who are so at peace with who we are now, but we are so dumbfounded about Mm -hmm. how to raise our children because the only way we were taught um, Mm -hmm. was through this fundamental slash evangelical or fundamental evangelical lens. And for myself, that left me with nothing (laughs) to deconstruct that. And now I'm like, that's all I was ever, my family I was raised with ministers. And, mm-hmm. and so I am just very thankful for you and your work. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you for saying that. Can I address that really quick? Yeah. 
Um, I, because a lot of parents will say this to me, I've deconstructed my values that I grew up with. I don't know what values to give to my mm-hmm. kids. And that's, this is really not true. You do have values. It is for those values that you deconstructed. So mm-hmm. those are the values that you give to your kids. <sighs> Love it. Oh, <laughs> oh, thank you. That's awesome. For joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests and the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.